This is J.M.D. Mateus, and you are listening to The Cave of Solitude. Welcome back, everybody, to The Cave of Solitude, your pop culture and comic book podcast coming to you from the megacity metropolis of Toronto. I am your host, Eric Anthony. Thank you for joining us for this very special episode that I am so excited to present to you. This week, I had the privilege to get a chance to talk with one of my favorite comic book writers and creators, none other than the legend himself, Mr. J.M. DeMatteis, who we all know as longtime comic book readers, perhaps, of being the writer of one of the greatest, if not the most celebrated Spider-Man story of all time, Craven's Last Hunt, as well as a fantastic run on the spectacular Spider-Man series. And if you listen to our last episode, me and uh, fellow comic book podcaster Adam Chapman got to talk about the Clone Saga, and, and uh, Mr. Demetrius was a, a big cog in the machine that was the Clone Saga, at least for me, the good parts. <laughs> but we go into more than just talking Spider-Man. We go into his creator-owned work, such as Brooklyn Dreams. We go into to a lot of questions that were given to us by you, the listener. So I want to send a special shout out. Like I I mentioned before, Adam Chapman gave me some questions to ask as well as DC Comics in the 80s, Justin Francoeur, who we had on the show recently, and uh, other guests such as Sam Noir, Kevin Boyd, all gave me great questions to ask JM during the interview. And we got to go all through the comic book universe, discussing the psychology, discussing the, the philosophy in his comic book writing. And, you know, I have to make mention that every writer, artist that I have the privilege of getting a chance to interview on the show are people whose work I really respect, whether it's it's their career or just them as a person. And in this case with uh, J.M. DeMatteis, he's a writer who's... uh, Stuff that I've, of course, gone back and reread or read for the first time. And it's been really profound for me on a personal level because of even though, you know, it's Spider-Man or Batman or even the Justice League that is well known, there's a lot of depth to his work that is speaking to me on different levels. So I'm really happy to have been able to chat with him. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I feel great about this interview. And once again, thank you to Jam DeMatteis for agreeing to be on the show. Without further ado... This is episode 138 of The Cave of Solitude, my conversation with comic book legend J.M. DeMatteis. So welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to The Cave of Solitude. We are very excited for this episode to have with us one of the most prolific and legendary comic book writers, Mr. J.M. DeMatteis. Uh, Thank you so much for being on the show today with us. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So I like to uh, begin these episodes begin or end them when I talk to uh, someone who's been writing comics for as long as you have and has has been as successful as you to give a little bit of of goodwill and share the love that I've heard about you from your contemporaries. So I've interviewed a couple of people at comic cons or over Skype who I've asked, you know, during your time being a a writer of Spider-Man, there's some of your Spider-Man collaborators. I said, who's your favorite uh, Spider-Man writer excluding Stanley. And so far you're you're the guy that everybody lists. So there you go. Really? Yeah, that's right. Wow. wow. Yeah. That's incredibly flattering. Yeah, and and it's it's deserved because I went back recently and reread a lot of your Spider-Man stuff, spectacular as well as the amazing stuff. And 
it is deserved. So you are in good company if people are saying, well, other than Stan, I'll, I'll give it to, they would say Mark, Mark DeMatteis. Wow. So, wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. I, I, uh, I really appreciate that. I loved working on that, uh, that character. I mean, uh, someone was asking me about it recently, and I was trying to explain that when you work on a character as long as I do with Spider-Man and go as deep with the character kind of psychologically and emotionally, they become very real to you. So that Peter Parker becomes not just a character, but someone that I know and connect with and relate to like a friend, you know. And the truth is for for writers who spend most of their time alone in their head, when you're spending all these all, all these hours and hours with these, quote, imaginary people, they can become more real than the other people that you know in the real world, you know, because you are so invested in them and you spend so much time. Not just, you're not just writing them, you're living in them, you know what I mean? And I certainly felt that way about Peter Parker. And I always say Peter Parker, not Spider-Man, because with or without the mask, it's always Peter Parker. Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, everybody, whenever they list their favorite Spider-Man uh, stories, you ask them, okay, what's your favorite, what's the greatest Spider-Man story of all time? It's most popularly Craven's Last Hunt is the one that people go for. But those who really love the character... They list another uh, one of your stories, and that's the child within. Mm. And it that's like the Godfather two of the the, the Spider Man, like the Craven's Last Hunt, Vermin. Because you watch the first one and it's fantastic, but when you get into the second one and you pay attention, it, it's all the building blocks of who Michael Corleone becomes, right? And it's this kind of the same thing with Peter Parker and the Child Within, and and Harry and Vermin. I mean, I. I got a list of questions to go through, but since we're already on Spider-Man, you want to talk sure. about Child Within? Sure. You know, that, that whole two-year run I did with uh, Sal Buscema on Spectacular Spider-Man uh, was some of the most fun I've ever had, one of the best collaborations I've ever had. Loved working with Sally. Such an amazing artist and such a, such a good man, too. So it's always nice when you're collaborating with someone who is both talented and a good person, so you can enjoy the collaboration on every level, you know? And uh, I enjoyed that whole run, but yeah, Child Within was a very special story, as was the, the basically the climax of that run, which was the Spec 200 when Harry Osborn died. Um, but both those stories uh, really mean a lot to me. And it, and it gave us a chance to explore these characters in new ways, you know? It was They were really a deep dive psychologically more than anything else. Whatever was going on on the outward levels and layers of that story with, um, with the action, with whatever battles were going on with Peter and Harry or Peter and uh, Spider-Man and Vermin, it, it, those were just um, vehicles to really carry the internal, the internal conflicts that were at the core of that story. And it's right early on in that story where Peter is conflicted with uh, finding vermin because he's, you know, on a spree again. And, and he's got this urge to go home and be with his wife and, and be the family man. But then he also has that guilt of the power and responsibility. And he says something uh, in one of those, I think it's the first issue, actually, where he says he wishes everything could be just black and white. And he finds himself with this internal, internal struggle of to see the this past the villain that is in his face and try to see who's underneath it. Now, Ditko, the, the you know, co-creator of Spider-Man, many would say even the most, the more influential part of creating Spider-Man was very black and white in how he wanted his characters to be. And now you have Peter going through 
these grays of not knowing what to do. Where, how did you find yourself there? And, and can you explain a little bit of that psychology with a character who was always designed to sort of be black and white? Well, you know, with, uh, you know, Vernon was a character that Mike Zek and I uh, co-created when we were doing Captain America together. And I kept bringing the character back and then brought him into um, Craven's Last Son. And even in Craven's Last Son, I didn't have a chance to explore that character the way I did Craven. But there were little hints that there was a human being trapped in there, you know, that and, and, you know, you live in the world long enough. We're not even long enough. I think it's it's to many, if not most of us, it's just a natural instinct uh, to have compassion, to want to understand. I always felt that way. And it doesn't matter. You, you know, you, you can't label someone or something a villain. You just can't. They're human beings who have been twisted and spun around by life and they, they end up in this place. But the only way you can, you can really oppose something like that is to understand it and have compassion for it. And certainly that's Peter. You know, I mean, I, I just as a person, I've always been compelled to look at the world that way. Um, mm-hmm. And Peter is a very compassionate person. And he, he, he's not going to look at, at the world in black and white terms because that's not who he is. He, he has enough flaws in himself that he knows that he is not black and white. He's a character that was born out of guilt. You know, Ditko might have ultimately put forth and embraced this black and white thing. But if you look at the Spider-Man stories that he worked on with Stan, they were not about black and white. They were about humanity and, and, and feet of clay. That's what, that's what made those stories so unique in their time, you know? Um, so I think it's, you know, it's perfectly in keeping with who Peter is that he would look at the world that way and even look at someone like Vermin who outwardly is as, as, you know, sort of the embodiment of the, 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 the ugliest in humanity and, and look in those eyes and see that, see the human being trapped in there and want to help him. Yeah, I, I appreciate that approach because I, I don't think. Peter is a, a black and white character as much as maybe some, you know, old school fans of the, the character may say, oh, that's Dick Go's vision. But you say something interesting or you bring up an interesting concept. Is he a noble character or is he motivated by guilt? Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? I don't think those two, two things are exclusive. You know, human beings are very, very, very complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a tremendous guilt motivation. One of the things we dealt with in The Child Within was, you know, that, that, that the source of that guilt went, was going on way before even Uncle Ben's death, you know, because of his psychology as a little boy when he lost his parents, you know. Mm-hmm. But we can be motivated by guilt and still have other nobler motivations and aspirations as well. You know, some people will have that guilt in their lives, but they're not going to do what Peter did. Absolutely. Whether they had powers or not, they're not going to go out there time after time and put themselves on the line, you know? Um, they, and, and so he, he is essentially, you know, not a selfish person. He's someone that is compelled to ultimately do the right thing. It's not, it, the great thing about the character is it's not easy for him. Mm-hmm. That's what's that's what's wonderful about it. You know, you look at a character like Captain America, and I always felt, and I wrote that character for three years. I loved Captain America, but doing the right thing was just who he was, and that's what he did, and off he went. You know, right. with Peter, it was always you know it put everything else in his life on the line every time he went out to do that, and 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 it was not easy for him. Uh, it but time and again when he looked inside himself and he had to make that choice. He always made the choice to, to, to be on the side of the angels. And, but it was a struggle. It yeah. was a struggle. 
And that, that's what I love about how, especially when you explore that aspect of them, is because this is such a normal person. Like, this is actually what everybody feels, whether you're a superhero or not. It's this, am I motivated by guilt or am I doing the, like, it's that questioning in your mind. I love that you put them through those paces. Even though it's a comic book character that, you know, we're reading as kids, it's profound stuff. Oh, thank you. And, you know, like I said, we, you know, we're complex. So, yes, we, we have guilt. We have this. We have that. You can look at anyone's psychology and you can say, oh, that person became a saint mm-hmm. because when they were three years old, their mother and father did this and this and that. And they're just working out their psychology by doing these saintly things. And on one level, that's completely true. On another level, there's a whole other aspect of their mind and heart and soul that's at work there that drove them to do that with their lives, you know. So just because something appears to be contradictory uh, doesn't mean it's not true. It took me a long time to understand that contradictions don't have to pull at each other. They can kind of coexist and complement each other. Yeah, absolutely. I I completely agree with that. Um, Vermin, a little bit more about Vermin. He talks about everybody wearing a mask. Can you get into a little bit of your your characterization of Vermin? How did you come up, not come up with, because it's, it's a little bit of a sad story that he has, but wh- what made you want to go into the direction of his backstory where he's faced some serious, like, molestation, which isn't something that was explored in Marvel Comics at the time. What made you want to uh, go in that direction with, with Vermin? You know, it's funny, because the landscape has shifted so much that probably had we done that story today, uh, there would be all kinds of PR about mm-hmm. it, and, and, and it would be on CNN and all these, you know, Marvel does uh, child abuse story. Whereas that story kind of came and that came out, and I never heard a word really about that aspect of the story beyond just people enjoying the story. But, you know, the, the theme of the child within was just that, is what is it in our childhood that shapes us and molds us and pushes us? And for Vermin, um, it was the pain uh, and the guilt and the psychological twisting of having been abused as a as a kid, and I think we handled it. You know, we we didn't handle it in a sensationalistic way at all. No, not at all. We handled it uh, in as tasteful a way as possible. You know, because I know uh, that people that go through that, you know, the last thing I'd want to do would, would be to cheapen that by handling it in in a sensationalistic way. Uh, so, but that was what the whole story was about. Let's peel the, their psyches back. To, to the child that formed the man, you know, and with vermin, that's what it was. And, you know, there's a phenomena, a psychological phenomena, where the way that, that children survive guilt, and it's the same thing I played with, with, uh, with Peter, with the death of his parents, uh, they're in a situation where they're helpless, where they're victims, where the world kind of just feels like chaos around them. And one of the ways they learn to survive is to take on the guilt themselves and think and believe somehow that it's their fault. Because the twist, the twisted psychology is, at least if I say it's my fault, mm-hmm. I have some control. It's right. not just chaos, you know? So it's a weird psychological uh, loop that, that, that children can get. And it's like the kid, the child of divorce, who thinks, oh, mommy and daddy are splitting up because it must be my fault. And it's it's a weird survival instinct, you know, um, to give someone who's utterly powerless, like a little child, a power in a horrible situation. And uh, and Vermin was made to feel all this all the shame and the guilt that should have been on his father. He took on himself. He thought really at his core, what was he? He was Vermin. And so mm-hmm. when this transformation occurred that turned him into this thing, 
it manifested this deep psychological image, uh, and he literally became vermin. So when you created Vermin during Captain America, having said yeah. that, because that's where he becomes transformed into that character, the rat, right? Did right. You... Well, we don't, we don't find out, I think, till later what the origin is. We find out, in, and I think I think it's, you know, it's a long time ago. I don't remember. I think that we did a story called "The Death of Vermin" in Spectacular Spider-Man, which uh, I think dipped more into the backstory okay. and how how he became and transformed. But yes, he originally appeared in Captain America. And I know that he was, he, we established, I think then that he was a creation of Baron Zemo. Right. So did you know, um, then that, uh, that vermin, this would be his backstory. Was that something that was, that would come, that came to you as you continued to write him in the Spider-Man series? I, I would love to say I was so brilliant that I knew it right <laughs> from the get-go, but no, I didn't. I didn't at the, at, when we first uh, came up with him. I just thought it was a really cool idea to have this despicable little man rat running around, you know. Right. Um, but then when it was time to really, you know, look at the character and explore the character, uh, and that's really the fun of the gig, you know. I always say you you get out your drill and you drill into their into their skulls and down into their psyches and you poke around and and so then that's when I I really said I want to know who is he. Where did he come from? What made him? And there were little hints of it in, in Craven's Last Hunt, I think, um, of this sort of vulnerable child underneath. But in The Child Within, that's where I really sort of pulled that story out. I don't think I had it in my mind before we set forth on that story. Mm. I love your uh, – you, I've heard you in other interviews say that when people say, you know, how did you come up with this? You know, I didn't. It, it, was, it was always there. The story kind of – I discovered it. I love that that explanation that you have, especially when – uh, when people ask, you know, about Aunt May knowing that Peter was Spider-Man all of that time, you always have that thing. Well, she, it only makes sense. It, I didn't write that. It was there. How did you know? Yeah, that, um, that's the truth. You know, it's, it's when, you know, there's, there's, two, there's two halves uh, to, to this process of creating stories. Um, and the, the most important half, or more than half, I'd say it's three quarters uh, or maybe 90 percent, is, is when you can get out of the way and let the story flow through you. When you can work with these characters and they begin to reveal themselves to you. Um, so that, you know, and, and the great thing about working on an ongoing title is you really get to spend time with these characters. And they, they become real and they reveal themselves to you. So it becomes, at a certain point, not a question of, hmm, I mean, what, 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 what is Aunt May going to say in this issue? No, it's Aunt May starts talking and you go... Holy moly, I didn't know that. And that's always the best moment when you go, I didn't know that. Or, or a, char a character appears that you never expected or never heard of, and suddenly you're typing, and this character appears on the page who seems to have come from another dimension and forced their way into the story, and I've had that experience. Um, so that's, that's really the fun of it. Is it's, it's, it's a process of discovery. In, in the best of all possible worlds, it's a dis process of discovery. Now, the other, the other, whether it's 25% or 10%, has to do with the conscious mind and, and basic skill sets and being your own editor. And, and, you know, so I can sit down if you say, you know, here's 10 pieces of story, Pike. We need you to put them together. I have the skill set to do that. Right. Um, and sometimes, that, you know, the, the job ends up being that, and that's not a bad thing. Because you have the skill set, and I know how to put a story together. You need a story? I'll give you a story, you know? Mm -hmm. But the real fun comes when that story is just sort of taking on a life of its own. And you're the other metaphor I sometimes use is like you're on a horse, you know? And you're galloping along, and you think your goal is straight ahead of you. 
like about five miles. And the horse starts rearing off to the left and wants to go 10 miles to the left. Well, you can fight with that horse and try to make it go those five miles ahead of you. But you're much better off if you just let the horse gallop off and take you where it wants to go because that's when you're going to get a great story out of it. Yeah, and, and Tom DeFalco had said something similar where he he mentioned like you know I, I the story wrote itself and it for me I'm kind of a of the mind that somewhere whether it's in another dimension or another universe this story's already been told we're just being given the the information now to tell it for us to be entertained by it almost as though like the the comic book panel is a window somewhere else where that's already happened and we're we're creating it we're blessed with the ability to tell that story yes so i've said i've said almost the same exact thing I, I there's like a dimension of story out there and i always imagine that the story you know there's this living creature that's a story and it's kind of floating around almost like a ghost goes into this writer's house and oh is this the one no 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 she's not the one mm, this how is this the writer oh now i found the guy and it, into your head it goes, you know, and and suddenly the story's coming out because the story chose you. You didn't choose the story, and then you know there's the idea that I've heard both in in mysticism and and physics about you know how our thoughts uh, can cr- what we think uh, exists somewhere in another dimensional plane. So yes. that if we you know enough people have been invested in Peter Parker over the years, that somewhere. Uh, somewhere there's a world where there is a Peter Parker and there is a Spider-Man and all these characters really exist. And then, of course, you want to flip it around and really screw your head up. And maybe they, they existed first and or simultaneously they're creating us, dreaming them, and we're dreaming them, dreaming us. And it's really a loop. It's not one or the other, you know? Yeah. So I, I, these are the, when, I, when I do my writing workshops, these are the things I love to talk about when we get into the metaphysics of creativity. You know, we talk about the nuts and bolts, but I love to talk about the metaphysics as well. Yeah, I, and I love that about your storytelling because it's I, I really I read uh, Will World, and uh-huh. I, I really felt that happen at it all at the end. All of it came together, and uh, Hal Jordan, when he discovers where he's been, he kind of says something to the effect of what you just said and I absolutely loved it but sticking to Spider-Man for one second because you sure. you uh, brought up um, how everybody's thinking of this character and it's it's creating these stories that really messes your head up so I want to talk for a little bit just because I've been reading it a lot recently the clone saga okay <laughs> and I know it wasn't your idea to to come up with the the initial pitch for it but you right. you you wrote some of the most intriguing stuff, in my opinion, because I felt um, you're, you're always very interested in identity and understanding uh, yourself, discovering yourself. And in this, this really lends itself to Peter, yeah. a, a version of Peter not liking his life anymore and wanting to become, you know, kill off his, who he is as Peter. And then you've got this other person who wants nothing but Peter's life. And it's like they're each looking into each other's mirror and loving and hating the other at the same time. What made you want to jump on board with something that even initially was kind of controversial as a story idea? You know, and what you actually just answered the question yourself. Okay. I'll answer okay. It again. I'm happy I understood I, it right. I, do. I love stories about identity. I love, you know, I love those old Twilight songs where the guy wakes up and he's not who he thought he was and no one else around him can recognize him. But he he's embedded in this identity and he's got to prove that he is who he says he is. And, and you know, that's sort of I love it in fiction. And that's in life. That's isn't that what it's all about? We're always trying to define our identity. 
Uh, who Absolutely. we think we are versus who we are is always a big question. You know, we have our illusions and delusions about ourselves where you look at it spiritually. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, um, as, as, as many, if not most, spiritual paths talk about the fact that we are essentially divine. And yet there's this other personality and game laid over the face of God, you know, so we're, we're, we're sort of, we believe we're this when we're really that. And so it works psychologically, it works spiritually, metaphysically, you know, so I love the whole concept of searching for our identity. So when uh, I think it was Terry Cavanaugh, we were at a big Spider-Man writers meeting and, he, and someone, had, someone had, had mentioned it to me earlier, said, well, you know, Terry's thinking about bringing back the clone. And I was like, oh, my God, what a stupid idea. I don't want to do it, you know. <laughs> and then when it came up in the meeting, Terry presented it more in these terms that we're talking about. You know, I also love Philip K. Dick, who always plays with identity and, and reality and what we think versus what is. And, you know, and so it was like, oh, my God, this is like a Rod Serling, Philip K. Dick opportunity to dive in and really, really play with the whole question of identity. You know, the clone... Uh, believes that he's real until he discovers that he's not real. And, you know, and that, that Peter, though the original idea, of course, was that the Peter we've been reading about was actually the clone, and the guy that came back was the real guy. And, you know, and so there were so many wonderful themes to play with in there. Um, so I very enthusiastically jumped on board. Uh, the, you know, the, and, and as has been talked about many times, our original idea was to go in, tell the story pretty quickly, I mean, originally, I think the idea was to be in and out in six months, and maybe it got extended to a year. That thing went on for, what, like three years or something? Something, something um, like that. You know, it went on and on and on, and it, w- it wasn't because of the creative uh, team either. It was just the circumstances behind the scenes. It kept getting dragged out and dragged out, um, and I eventually put on my parachute and jumped out of the plane, you know? Um, but there was some great stuff there. I loved, uh, play- I loved Ben Riley as a character that I still love. I would write Ben Riley again in a heartbeat. Um, and I loved writing that Lost Years miniseries. Yeah, that was fantastic. That almost felt like, when I when I reread it recently, um, a Peter Parker version of the Daredevil, the Man Without Fear, with the John Romita art, of course, but it's that same. There's, right. There's no, there's no costumed uh, Spider-Man in it, but it's so visceral, right. so real, and that conflict of him discovering who he is was fantastic. Yeah, I, I really uh, – that, that's the only thing I've ever done with Romita Jr., I, I believe. Well, maybe there was a, there was a really uh, – very early at Marvel, there was a fill-in issue of Spider-Man that he drew and Denny O'Neill plotted and I dialogue. But that was the only real job that we ever really worked on together. He's such a, such a good artist and perfect for a story like that because it was Ben Riley. I didn't want costumes and supervillains. You know, It didn't mm-hmm. make any sense. This was a guy on the road leaving Spider-Man and that life behind, you know? And that was another story, as I as I remember talking about it, that just it just kind of came out, you know. And and I remember ending the first issue or the second issue, and I don't remember what the twist was, but there was some plot twist that I just kind of wrote, and I went, "Oh, really? How do I get out of this? I had no idea. It was just the story said <laughs> this is a twist. Now figure it out, you know." And on we went. But I love that series. I love Ben Riley. Uh, my other favorite story from the whole Clone Saga was the Death of Aunt May story, which uh, it really means a lot to me. And uh, you know, we had fun too. It was a fun period because we would get together at the Marvel office. Maybe every two weeks, all the writers would get together. We'd send out for pizza, Chinese food, and yell at each other and argue and 
and have a great time because it was a bunch of guys that really liked and respected each other. So we could yell at each other. You know what I mean? Right, right. When, when you have respect for the person across the table, you know, they know when you're yelling about this stuff that, you know, you still love them. Don't worry about it. You know? So we really had a great time. And Danny Fingeroth, who was running the spider office for those first couple of years, just a, you know, one of my dear friends and a wonderful editor. And he, he really created a great atmosphere for us there. And as I said, the problem with the clone saga was that it just sort of, uh, First, it was, I think, that marketing, you know, thought, oh, this is doing really well. Can we please extend it, you know? And then, and then there were changes and new editors came in and all, and, 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 and it just, it just, it blew up and just went on and on and on and on and on. And um, I think there was some very good work done there. I, I think didn't. there were some great characters that came out of it. And happily, you know, characters like uh, uh, Ben Riley and Kane have, you know, have made their way back. Mm-hmm. So, um, and so, and they have they have real value. I think Kane is a, just a great character. You know, I think Howard Mackey came up with the original idea of Kane, and then we all developed it. And I really developed it in uh, in the Lost Years series. Um, and just you know, some wonderful characters, some wonderful stories. It's just the whole thing. If we had gone in and gotten out as quickly, because the plan was get in quick, get out quick, and then reboot Spider Man. Because Ben Riley, who was really Peter Parker, has been away for five years. And now he, Peter and Mary Jane go off to live happily ever after and have their baby. Ben becomes the new Spider-Man. We were talking about creating a new supporting cast. I mean, we're really going to start over with a new Spider-Man number one. Um, and it would have been great, I think, had it been done the way we envisioned it. But that's not what happened, so it was still fun. <laughs> um, Kevin Boyd actually has a, a question, listener question, in regards okay. to uh, this era what was it like for you to you, – you, you answered it by saying you loved the guys that you were working with, but you had done a, um, you know, a run on Spectacular Spider-Man, Craven's Last Hunt, where you had a, a vision of the story you wanted to tell with Harry Osborn in your Spectacular run, Craven in the, the, the series you did there. But now you are constantly passing the baton, and sometimes signals are getting mixed because of the editorial that's involved. Was that a challenge for you? Because you have a, a very you and uh, DeFalco going back and forth, and you in in the exploration of Peter during that time was was great. But did it become too convoluted for you to stay um, inspired? Yes. Okay. okay. <laughs> it's, a, it's a perfect question because it's true. Um, you know, I loved the creativity of all of us getting together and throwing ideas around and building stories. What I didn't like was going home some months and writing chapter two of a four or a five part story of that, that month. You know what I mean? Cause there was also, there were the four main books and then there was a, I don't forget what it was called. There was a big Spider-Man unlimited or yes. whatever they called yes. it, um, right. uh, that came out quarterly. And so it, it, it was frustrating because you're, you're exactly right. I, 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 I am much happier going off and like carving off, carving out my own little, uh, corner of a universe and creating my own sub-universe within that universe. Um, it's, uh, it was frustrating. And also it, 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 it clamped down on spontaneity. Like I just said, some, I like to write and be surprised by myself. And I remember before Tom DeFalco, who's another dear friend who I love working with, it was one month we were doing something and I just, this change in the ending came out, you know, and I, so I put it in the plot, but Tom had already written his plot, you know, yeah. which was for the part that came after mine. So he had to double back to change the beginning of his story because I changed the end of mine. So, you know, you, it had to be fairly rigid because you couldn't be that spontaneous because it screwed up the next guy in the chain. And that, 
that's the thing that um, was frustrating. There were a couple of times where we split off into smaller groups, like Tom and I did a, a couple of stories that just ran between our two books, which yep. was a lot easier to control. Yeah. Um, but when you've got four or five parts every month, and uh, it, 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 it's easy for the whole thing just to kind of get a little too top-heavy. And then you sit in a room with everybody, and, and we're all agreeing on the story. But then when everyone goes home, everyone has their own vision of what we talked about in that room. Yeah. So you read somebody else's chapter – and it might have been very well done. That's not the question. But you go, but that's not what I thought we were talking about, you know. Yeah. And and so there's that. So 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 it, it was it was really a great time uh, creatively with all those guys. But it was a little frustrating as well when it was time to go home and write the stories. So you mentioned the uh, one of your your proudest moments was the death of Aunt May issue. Did you were you disappointed in the fact that they changed that later on and, and said that the woman who died was an actress and blase blase was that a, a you know something that stuck in your craw? It, it did for probably five minutes. You know, um, <laughs> okay. I would have preferred had they you know it's comics so everybody comes back. True, but you know, Craven stayed dead for twenty five years or some crazy thing like that. You know. Maybe maybe twenty years. Harry Osborne stayed dead for you know fifteen years. Um, so that when they came back, it's like, all right, it's been twenty years. You can bring him back. You know, Aunt May came back in about fifteen minutes. Right. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and so um, I think I would have would have minded less had there been a little more time to let that play out uh, with a little more reality uh, in in the Spider Man universe. But they really kind of. Uh, unplugged her resurrection well that's not the right way to put it but you know what i mean yeah they, they brought back you know, way too soon and you know what but what are you going to do it's comics that's what happened you know i i've i've done i'm sure i've done things like that to other writers and it happens to me and it's just the nature of the beast and the truth is that story that we did is still out there and anyone can pick up amazing spider-man 400 and read that story and hopefully appreciate it and be moved by it you know yep, definitely I got to say, it, this is kind of a morbid thing to say, but if anybody could write the story of my death, I would ask you to do it because between, between the Red Skull, Craven, I mean, I wouldn't want to be killed the way Craven was, but Harry Osborn and Aunt May, they're some of the most memorable deaths of a character in a comic book that aren't hackneyed, like they're earned. And when you get to that point, you can accept that this has happened and that it should stay that way. Yeah. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I, I don't. I don't want to write the story of your death. You know, no. may you live to be 150, and 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 let's let's, let's let it be that way. I don't want. I don't want that responsibility. <laughs> but it would be probably a really good comic book, an interesting read at, at the very least. <laughs> so, getting back, getting back to you know, a half hour later, let's take it back to the beginning a little bit. You grew up uh, in Brooklyn, correct? Yep. So I want to talk a little bit about Brooklyn Dreams, some non-superhero stuff. Um, how much of that book is a bottle biography? Is it just the names that were changed or, or where did you get, you know, take creative freedoms with it? Well, here we go, you know, in the name of fiction, you know, what's the difference between fiction and, and say memoir, right? You know, I could have written, it's, oh, let's, let's start. First, I'll say that it's, it's maybe my favorite thing that I've ever done. If not, it's in the top three, cause you know, it might. By tomorrow, I may decide that some other story was my favorite thing. Maybe it was Moonshadow or whatever, you know. But but Brooklyn Dreams is is one of the very best things I've ever done, and one of my absolute favorites. So everything in there is true. But 
the, the reason why I didn't do it as a, quote, memoir and a straight autobiography is because we're human beings. My memory of events, kind of like what I was talking about in the Spider-Man meeting, well, we're all agreed on the story. Let's go home and write things that have no relation to what we talked about because memory is a funny thing. And how I lived and remembered something isn't necessarily how someone else that I experienced that would lived and remembered it. And what I was more concerned about, you know, I didn't want to – the minute you say it's a memoir, it's like, well, I have to get the date exactly right. right I have to right, get right. – this has to be precise. And, and I wasn't interested in that kind of precision. What I was interested in was getting to the truth because mm. we can all disagree about the details, but there's a common truth there. And I was getting to the common – to the truth of my life in a way that I didn't want to have to be weighted down by whether that was Tuesday or Thursday or did that happen in – June of 72 or, you know, whatever it was. So by, by changing the names, um, it gave me a level of freedom to tell the truth. So by lying, I was able to get to the truth more quickly. How's that for a paradox that's true? I, I absolutely love it because I've been asking a lot of questions uh, just in conversation with people, with myself. And I heard you on another show talk about the importance of constantly asking questions because some people stop. They think they have all the answers. But you open up that book uh, with your character saying, you know, is it true? Is it a lie? Well, that's a funny thing. And I asked the question to, to some friends of mine saying, you know, what's the difference between the truth and a fact? And some of them said, well, it's the same thing. But based on what you just said now, that's, it's a very interesting paradox because the, the, does right. the date matter or is the fact that that it's true and you know the date is the fact but it doesn't change what's true it's a very interesting thing to think about and what people consider to be truth so did you right it, right yeah within the book you talk about again uh trying to find your identity as a young person did you grow were, were you part of a, a, a half italian half jewish family actually yeah yeah all that stuff that you read in there is you know is is what it was from my my memory and perspective yeah so yes everything about that character that's me i just changed the name so i would <laughs> i so i could lie to get to the truth you know the de you know they were the details as i remembered them so there's nothing in there about my life that i made up do you see what i'm saying right just my life as I remembered it, since it's just my version of events, I, I felt freer fictionalizing it, but fictionalizing it only by changing, you know, names. So with that said, being, you know, your dad being Italian, what is officially the proper name, way to say your last name? Well, Demetrius. when I was growing, you know, my, my father's family came to America and somewhere along the line, it got squashed into Dematis. So a lot of people right. know me as Dematis and I accept Dematis, but my father always used to say, but it's really Demetrius, you know? And I, and I, and I kept that in my head. And when my daughter, who's in her twenties now was about, I don't know, nine or 10, I told her that she was like, Oh, well, that's what I'm doing from now on. It's Demetrius, you know? <laughs> and I thought, you know, she's right. That's what the name is. So uh, I, I much I prefer Demetrius. I will always accept Demetrius. And then I went to Italy recently and went to the town where my Italian grandparents came from and met uh, a bunch of people that uh, there's like I don't know thirty of them still living and they in that town and they pronounce it Demetrius like one there's no break with the is you know what I mean mm -hmm. they say Demetrius like a long one long mm -hmm. sound and I thought I can't change the pronunciation again <laughs> two is enough for me you know. What what uh, part of Italy is your family from? Uh, Calabria. Okay. 
Very good. Yeah, my fa- my family background is Italian as well, so I was always interested. I'm like, is that a Greek last name? Is it Italian? I was well, so curious. There are there are Greeks with that last name, and right? I think yeah. there are, there there's some French. Uh, it, it's in France as well. So, um, but but um, but no, I'm from the Italian branch. Maybe it originated in Greece, or mm-hmm. you know, I'm not really sure because usually Italian names end in a vowel. Right. Exactly. And this one does not. So it's possible, my father told me, but who knows, you know, it could have been just some family lore that he heard, that there, that, uh, that, that what might have originally been Greek, but, you know, long, 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 long ago, they came to Italy. All I know is I come from uh, a bunch of Italian peasants from Calabria. <laughs> <laughs> Although good. I have to say, the great thing about the people that I met over there, the Dimites, uh people over there, said they were all extraordinarily accomplished. You know, one was a biologist, one oh. was an archaeologist, one was a doctor, you know. So here they were in this little, they live in this little town in, in the mountains in Calabria, and they were extremely uh, highly educated, accomplished people. Uh, I was very impressed with that. And just so warm. You know, we weren't, we knew we were had to be related in some way, but, you know, we didn't know exactly where. One of them thought that maybe our grandparents had been cousins, you know. Mm-hmm. But they welcomed us and treated us like we were the family that they knew, you know. It was really a, an amazing experience that I had going back there. And it was the first time I'd ever been to Italy. And so to go and do that and, and uh, connect with that side of my uh, heritage was really an extraordinary thing. That's great. Yeah, I just recently uh, visited Italy for the first time this last summer, too. And I did a tour. I didn't do a, a family visit, but uh, it was really nice to be able to see, you know, where your lineage come from and have a new yeah. appreciation for some of those things you grew up maybe not appreciating so much, but like, oh, I get why they wanted me to know about that. That That's something yeah. from home, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I never felt more Italian than I did when I was in Italy. <laughs> you know? It's like, wow, I guess I'm more Italian than I realized. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we, we was great. We went to a convention in Sicily, and then we went from Sicily to Calabria, and then up to Rome, and just had the best time, the very best time. That's great. So having been to the southern part of Italy, where, you know, not too far away from Calabria and, and, and Napoli, they say that's where the best pizza comes from, and you grew up in Brooklyn, and yeah. some of the best pizzas in Brooklyn that I've had. Where do you? Where did you find the best pizza that you ever had? If you even like pizza, I'm sure you do. You can't dislike pizza yeah, being from I New York. You know, I mean, I have problems with wheat and gluten and dairy, but I periodically I still have to have a really good slice of pizza. It's just in my blood, you know. Right. Um, what's interesting is while we were we were in southern Italy, we did not have any pizza. There was when we Calabria, there was so much good food everywhere yeah. that we never got around to even having any pizza. You know, you know how if you've been there, you know you sit down to these meals and you're, you're sitting there for an hour and a half, and they're bringing out course after course after course after course. You know, um, so um, and we had some pizza in Rome, which was good, but um, but I gotta have to say the, the pizza in Brooklyn growing up was pretty amazing. Right. I, I have to agree. I really love the pizza in Italy because, you know, it comes down to the dough. But I said to my wife, I go, there's some places that we've had in New York and in, and in Brooklyn where it's pretty close. Yeah. 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 Now I'm thinking about there's a place when I lived uh, here, Kings Highway in Brooklyn, and there was a place right under the, the train station on Kings Highway called Armando's that had the best Sicilian pizza. I mean, just amazing. Be lined up there at three o'clock in the morning, you know, to get pizza. Uh Anyway, we, we we didn't we didn't get here to talk about pizza. But. No, that's okay. I was going to ask you about pizza though. Don't I, either at the beginning or at the end. I had to ask that. So, right, no, getting no, back no, to no. Brooklyn Dreams, um, there's a part in the book where you, the, your character 
um, discovers reading the Bible or other religious texts that, you know, you just clutched onto? What was it about reading those things that appealed to you? And I know that you've learned and and studied so many different types of uh, spiritualities and philosophies, but what did you take from, from reading that at an early age that you keep with you to this day? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because growing up, um, you know, I came from these two different backgrounds, but nobody was particularly heavily religious. You know, the, the, the Jewish side, the Jewish thing for a lot of people, it's a lot more cultural than it is religious. You know, this is identification with being Jewish and a sort of Jewish cultural identity. Um, and uh, on my father's side, you know, identify being Italian with like eating. You know what I mean? <laughs> Not with Catholicism. You know, my father would sometimes take me across. We had a giant Catholic church across the street from my house growing up. And we'd go in there, and I was always spooked by the Catholic church because, you know, the candles in the corner and then these giant stained glass windows of poor Jesus in agony, you know. And, right. And, and, and the priests were often really hard-edged guys, at least in my neighborhood, you know. So um, – but what, I think that what that did for me was I kind of also saw from growing up around both things that – there's a place where it all meets in the middle, you know? And then when I was about 16 or 17, which, you know, I, I, I was going to say it comes up for everyone, but it doesn't come up for everyone. Sometimes it doesn't come up for people till they're on their deathbed, you know? Yeah. But I had this deep, deep desire to know what's it all about yeah. In, yeah. in a very primal way. And, 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 and that's still the themes that echo through my work today. What's it all about? What's it all about in the big picture? Why are we here? Is you know, is there a God? Why are we here? What's the purpose of life? And then there's the what's about all about that's the psychological what's about all about, you know, and they both sort of mirror and play off each other. So it just that was just awakened in me and began this uh, period of intense search. And in the course of that intense search, you know, I realized I, I somehow, I don't know, I, I got interested in Jesus, not even at that point as a spiritual figure, more as just an intriguing figure. I had never read the New Testament. So I read that then. And, you know, reading Siddhartha by Herman Hesse and all these things, you know, but it, and as, as it, with Brooklyn Dreams, it all culminated with this very, very profound, for lack of a better word, mystical experience of God that really, really changed my life and also uh, opened up for me the field of vision that, yeah, at the core of it, all these religions and all these spiritual paths are talking about the same thing. People, they layer stuff on it that gets hard and crusty and makes it seem like everything is different and everyone has is in opposition to each other. But when you pull, you pull those structures down and you get to the core, there is something uh, singular and divine that unites them all, you know? Um, so that's what that year was about in my life. <laughs> well, I think it, com- it comes. That's what drove me to write Brooklyn Dreams, to write about that journey. And the fun of Brooklyn Dreams, of course, was well, you know, you can never be on a straight road when you're talking about your life. So mm-hmm. I was trying to tell the story of this one year, and it kept sidetracking. And well, but when I was four, this happened. When I was eight, that happened. That. You know, yeah. which was the writing it. And I think it, it comes full circle because I, I was going to mention that the entire book is like a setup for this story that you're planning to tell, but you're like, okay, before I get to that, let me tell you this thing that happened when I went to, you know, my uncle's funeral and you give a little bit of details about that, but then it comes full circle when you're walking down the street and the concept of love hits you. And you know, that's, that's really the main theme of when you read about Jesus or when you read about all these other spiritualities, that is the, the, the connective tissue, like you said, when you peel it back. So did that actually, that, I mean, it, it, you say everything happened, but what was that like in real time, in your real life, having that epiphany? 
Yeah, it was very much as described in that book. And, it, you know, it wasn't about God as a concept or love as a concept. It was the experience, the literal experience of one's own divinity and the fact that we are all made of love. That, that's what the universe is. You know, the universe, when you strip away the layers of what I like to sometimes call the CNN reality, you know, that they're trying to feed us every day. Well, this is what reality is. Mm-hmm. So, no, it's not. When you strip that away, there's something very, very different beneath it. And we, it's not something that we intellectually apprehend. It is something that we literally are. And so what people call mystical experiences, in my experience, are when we become that thing, you know? Well, it's easy to say God is love, but to feel that and actually be that, or to say we are all one, and suddenly find yourself in a state of consciousness where that's a literal experience, not a concept, but an experience of a universal oneness. It's an amazing thing. And even if it just happens once in your life, it's enough to color everything about your life for the rest of your life if you live to be 150. Yeah. No, it was, it was a, a great book and a great moment when your, your young self comes to that realization. What was the, um, the decision for that book to be in a black and white art form? Even this, there's no consistent style of art in it. Was it to um, mimic a dream, as it were, well, trying to recall something? The black like and white was just simply because Andy Helfer, who was running uh, Paradox Press at the time, a uh, wonderful guy and great editor, one of my favorite people I've ever worked with in the business, and also was a, a, also a great friend, um, that was the format. You know, he, he had been looking. He, he wanted those books to be able to go out into the world and reach people that didn't read comics. So he wanted something more akin to a manga format. So, you know, when it originally came out, there were little sort of almost digest-sized books. And you had this massive graphic novel that came out in these four chapters in these digest-sized books. In terms of what you said, you know, the, not a consistent art style, it was because uh, I, I really wanted the art to reflect the memory. You know, like the very beginning, you know, there's this childhood memory and uh, and uh, little little me is running down the street being chased by this dog. But I'm like three years old or four years old. So the dog is like the size of a dinosaur and the buildings are all the size of uh, mm-hmm. the, you know, the Empire State Building, because that's a kid's perspective. And that's the way we drew it. And Glenn, Glenn Barr, maybe the only time this has ever happened, maybe once or twice it's happened. I had in my head a vision of what I wanted the art to look like for this book. And there was a guy named Mark Nevelo who originally signed us for this uh, project when it was called, uh, I forget what the name was before, Paradox Press, Piranha Press. Uh, But then he moved on and Andy took over. But he said, here's this guy, Glenn Barr, what do you think of his art? And I looked and I went, oh my God, that's what I've been seeing in my head. So there was a a real um, amazing fusion with Glenn. Um, A writer friend once said, you know, that he, he, he always thought that really the greatest comics could only be made by someone who is an artist and a writer because it's, you know, it's pure cartooning. But he said that reading Brooklyn Dreams really showed him that, you know, the writer and artist can come together in a way and fuse and become that one being. And, and you know, working with Glenn was a delight. I would, you know, I, whatever I'd give him, he would give me either exactly what I wanted or, or it would be better than what I imagined. Um, so it was a, an amazing, wonderful collaboration. Awesome. So I'd like to move along to talk about uh, your collaboration with Keith Given because it's uh, it, you know it's one of the the highlights of your both of your careers working together. So, but uh, Justin Francoeur of DC in the eighties dot com he has some questions about your uh, Justice League run prior to getting onto the uh, run you did with uh, Keith because you right. had to shut down as it were the Justice League before you rebuilt it again. So right. who's uh, 
whose idea was it to shut down Justice League Detroit? Was that yours? Was it higher editorials? Yeah, I think I think you know they had done they were doing that Legends miniseries I think and the right. whole idea was they were gonna it, that was the that was the order you know we're we're getting rid of this Justice League we're gonna build a new Justice League down the line I didn't know anything about it let alone that I'd be working on it you know right and um, and uh, Andy Helfer again he was the editor on that and uh, he said do you want to come on and and you know finish up Jerry Comey had a couple of issues left over it was in the middle of a story I finished up Jerry's story. And then he said, "Okay, you got four issues. Go for it. You know, wrap this up." And I don't remember whether they specifically told me which characters to kill off, or whether that was my decision. That much I don't remember. But we did a nice four-part story. I thought wrapping up the old Justice League, and I thought, "Well, that's it. You know, I'm done. I can move on now." Hmm. You know. Uh, and little did I know that I would get sucked into this to this giant Justice League machine that would roll on for five years. Not to mention the various sequels and you know all the work that I've done with Keith and with Kevin in the years since. Right. So was it uh, Jerry's idea to have was Professor Ivo the main antagonist all the time, or was that something that you had decided on? Oh, and, oh, Jerry had nothing to do with that four-part end of the Justice League. It was okay. A, I, I came on a couple of issues before that, wrapping up one of his stories. I think there were two issues of wrapping up Jerry's story. And then uh, I think I must have come up with the Professor Ivo thing, or Andy and I had a conversation, and we both came up with it. I honestly don't remember, but that story was all mine, yeah. Okay. Justin, I hope that answers the question uh, as, as good as, as could be. Um, going to the, to the Justice League International run, um, you're now working with uh, Keith, who's plotting the story, you're scripting it, and this newcomer right. Kevin is is Kevin McGuire is doing the art. Fantastic team. What was it like for you to script something with? Because the book becomes known as the Bahaha era. There's the the comedic factor within these characters. Was that something that you did along the way, or was it a decided thing that the three of you were going to go you about? You know, you're it this cutting way? in and out, and oh. I've lost most of your question. You still there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Hello. Yeah, now I can hear you. But oh. that's good. The last. Yeah, okay. I'm here. Okay, good. Um, in regards to the... Last question. Okay. In regards to the collaboration with uh, you and with uh, Keith and Kevin, was it something that you guys decided would become that sort of a tone? Or did you see the way things were being drawn or the way the plot was and was just having fun with it? You know, the way it, it worked in different ways, but, you know, uh, it, it's very... I've worked on things over the years where I've dialogued someone else's plots, and it was never like it was with Keith, because the key to it was that once he handed the plot off, Keith had no ego about it. You know what I mean? Okay. If I wanted to add things, change things, you know, begin a whole new storyline through the dialogue, you know, um, that was fine with him. So I was given a lot of freedom to play on my end. You know, Keith would build these rock solid plots. He would build these wonderful moments between the characters. And then my job was to come in and get these idiots talking to each other. You know what I mean? (laughs) And, 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 and let them evolve and see where they would take us. And, and like I said, sometimes it would, it would create, it would create completely different plot lines through, through the dialogue. And then I, then Keith would see what I did and he would build on that and spin on that. And it was always about surprise, you know, and sometimes depending on the deadlines, I would be writing directly from Keith's plot, and in, I'd say, you know, in the past 10 years, at least, of our collaboration, I much prefer to do that, and, and I know at a certain point, Kevin said, 
when we were doing one of the sequels that he would rather do that because this way he had the plot and all the dialogue because Kevin is so likes to match the dialogue to the expressions and the gestures, you know? Right. And there was a period I think it was on Maybe I Can't Believe this, maybe the, uh, formerly known as the Justice League where Kevin was like, you know, I'm looking at Keith's plot, but then you're writing all this dialogue that's going off in a totally different direction. I would have drawn the page differently if I knew right. where you were going. So we, we tried to, you know, we tried to do it in a way that he would have the dialogue uh, but in those days, it was just, you know, it was a big machine that went on for like five years. So depending on where the deadlines were, sometimes they'd have the plot and, and Kevin's pencils, or sometimes I would just write from the plot and then Kevin would get the script, or maybe he would draw and would never even see the script, uh, because it all depended on where we were in, in, in the schedule. And, you know, you know, you know, we did a lot in those five years. We did... Uh, I don't know how was it 60 issues of Justice League and there was yep. Justice League Europe there was Justice League Quarterly which was like 80 pages four times a year um, you know and then I was doing spin-offs like Mr. Miracle and Dr. Fate and Martian Manhunter so I mean Justice League became you know 80% of what I did for those years uh, and it, w- it was great fun but I, what I always say is uh, and this proves how stupid we all were it was just a gig to us we it was a fun gig you know we loved working together and Andy was like the glue that held the whole thing together without him it would have never happened um and then it was over and we moved on and 10 years later we get asked to come back to do i can't believe it's not the justice league and we start to work on it and we all of us go for the first time honestly that's how dense we are this is really good we're really (laughs) good we work together wow we should keep doing this you know because when we were doing it before we were just you know we were just doing our job and we needed that time in between to be and to come back together to really appreciate um, just how good we we are together, the three of us, you know. And and we've done other projects together, and Keith and I have done lots of other projects together over the years, you know. Right. And uh, and but it took us all that time to be able to go, oh, this is pretty good. We should really keep doing this. <laughs> well, it, it's something to be said too that within a sixty-issue run of the Justice League, I think it stands out more than any other. Not to say that no one's ever written as good of a story. It's not to take away from any other creative team, but you guys never had. Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman on the roster together, which yeah. is kind of like no, no, not at all. Which is kind of you know the hallmark of the Justice League only works if they're there. But right. you you had Batman and you surrounded Batman by with comedy. Like what was it like to write a character who has such a you know everyone expects it to be a certain way, and now he has to deal with Booster Gold and and Blue Beetle. Right. Well, that was the fun of it with Batman. Someone else was just asking me about that recently uh, because my feeling, the way I, I, I wrote Batman, I'm sure Keith felt the same way, um, is that, yeah, he's still being on Batman and doing that whole thing. But underneath that, he was having the time of his life. Do you know what I mean? He was having so much fun being with those guys. He had to pretend that he wasn't. He had to be the stern parent, you know? Um but, but, you know, he loved those other, other characters, and he loved being in that Justice League. And that was the fun, was sort of the tension between what Batman had to pretend to be. There's, there's a question of identity again, right? And what he was feeling under the surface. And every once in a while, something would creep out, a little joke or something would come out of him. And they'd go, was that a joke? <laughs> no, no, that wasn't a joke. That wasn't a joke. You know? yeah. uh, that was the fun of writing Batman in that book. Yeah. Well, speaking of Batman and identity... Uh, one of my favorite Batman stories is Going Sane. Uh, I just reread it recently, and it's, you know, 
Frank Miller did the Joker being sane and after being in Arkham, but this is a different approach to it that was in continuity. What was that story like to put together, having you know, getting a chance to crack at the Joker in a different setting? Yeah, that that was another one of those stories I can remember sitting down and working on that where it just gushed out. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I didn't really have to think about what the story was going to be. I had the it was an idea I'd had for years. Um, I, I had pitched a version of it as a Batman graphic novel, you know, 15 years or something, or 10 years before I actually did it. Um, and then, you know, I held, I, you always, always hold on to your ideas, writers out there, never get rid of them because they'll always come back around again. And then Archie Goodwin, uh, another great editor and a wonderful guy, uh, offered me a chance to come do an arc on Legends of the Dark Knight. And I went, oh, this is the one. And I remember sitting there and it was just like I had to just get out of the way and let that story just kind of gush out. You know, visually, uh, in terms of the characters and what they were going through, everything just just clicked on that story. So I, I loved working on that story, and I still consider it, in terms of uh, uh, Marvel and DC superhero stories, one of the very, very best stories I've ever done. I just love that story, and I'm, uh, I don't like that it's not in print anymore. I would love to see it back in print. Well, there's a couple of things that you've done that, that they need to bring back in print. So if those who haven't read it, like Dr. Fate or... Uh, your spectacular Spider-Man run and this Batman, they should all be back in print because they're, you know, evergreen stories that are, they don't age badly. They, they still hold up. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. You know, I was just at a convention recently and someone gifted me. They put together uh, a hardcover. They took all the Dr. Fate stories and made it into a beautiful hardcover. Oh, that's you know, great. Just, you know, one-of-a-kind edition and they handed it to me and that's sitting on my bookshelf right now and I'm so happy to have it. But that's another series that, oh my God, I would love to have that out there. It's one of the best things I've ever done and a lot of people don't even know it exists. Yeah, yeah. I I heard you talking about it on another show and, and the, the same um, gentleman sent me an interview he did with you about the Dr. Fate series. So it's one of those things that would be nice to have as an option to read knowing that it's right up your alley with a character like Dr. Fate. Um Wanted to, there was a question I had at the tip of my tongue. Oh, yes. I asked this to every writer who's worked on Batman as well as Spider-Man. Which character has the better rogues gallery? So far, it's Spider-Man 2, Batman 1. And surprisingly, Jerry Conway was the one who voted for Batman. So what say you? Who has the better rogues gallery? You know, I have to say Batman. Oh, interesting. I, I, that's I mean, interesting. I, 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 I love the, the Spider-Man villains, and I you know, had a great time writing them. But there, I think, and if it's Batman, it's Batman by a, by a hair. Do you know what I mean? Um, but you know, and, and I think because those, those those villains were around for so many years before Spider-Man even existed. But there's so many interesting, weird uh, villains in the Batman uh, universe, and many that I haven't even had. Maybe it's because I haven't had a chance to write many of them that I feel that way. You know, um, that's why it was so great to get a chance to write the Joker. Right. Uh, but but maybe Batman by a hair. Okay. See, I always wonder that because I know for Batman, his f- greatest foe is the Joker. And, of course, he's got Two-Face and Rachel right. Ghoul. But then with Spider-Man, is it Dr. Octopus? Is it Harry or Norman? Like, it's it's one of those things you really can toss up in the air, which right. one really gets yeah, to him. It's, it's true. Um, yeah, who is... Uh, I like Dr. Octopus, but in my mind, he was never Spider-Man's greatest foe. I always thought it probably was the Green Goblin. Yeah, I think most people would say that's his Joker. It's, it, it's yeah. so close to yeah. home. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, writing the Harry Osborn Green Goblin was just 
just a perfect storm of elements, you know, for, for great dramatic storytelling because you had, again, you know, there's the mask and what, what's behind the mask. You have two guys that basically are best friends and love each other. And they're also mortal enemies. Yeah. I mean, you know, anyone with half a brain can come in and, and make great stories out of that. Yeah. One of the best endings to, to an anniversary issue, but any, any issue in particular where no words are on the page, but you feel everything that's being shown to you. Like Sal did a great job, but your, yeah. your script was, was phenomenal as well. Yeah, um, and I, I said this before, you know, I, I, when I, I reworked plot first on that, and then I, my plots were very detailed, and so it was all laid out what was happening on those pages. I put in, you know, explained all the emotion and the psychology of what's going on, and, and I really thought I was going to go in and have to really, you know, schmaltz it up and write a lot. And then the pages, those last, whatever it was, two or three pages came back from Sal, and he had everything I put in my plot was there on the page. And I realized I even started to write stuff. I remember I was writing captions, and I went, no. You know, part of the choice that you have to make as a writer, especially in comics, you know, is like, what do I say and what don't I say? And what don't I say is just as important as what do I say. And those pages, if I had put, you know, words or captions or some melodramatic spiel on those pages, it would have ruined it because Sal just nailed it so perfectly that, that those pages said everything that I needed to say at that part of the story. Yeah. And that's the beauty of comics. I, I, they really need to put that in the collection. It's, it's, I've collected it in single form, but it'd be yeah. nice to have on a bookshelf in, in one nice bound even an omnibus of, of your run with Sal would be great. I have a few questions to wrap up from listeners in regards to Moonshadow. I know that's an important sure. part of your, your catalog, so I don't want to uh, gloss over it. So Adam Chapman from the Comic, sh- comic Shenanigans, who you've actually been on his show before, he had a question about uh, Moonshadow, how you feel about it coming out in deluxe hardcover format next spring. And along with that, um, Sam Noir, who's a big fan of yours and Moonshadow in particular, he asks... Um, what it was like for you to jump from the traditional four-color newsprint comics to the fully painted art on the better glossy paper that was epic, and what were some of the challenges of pioneering sophisticated, that mature storytelling during your time uh, doing that book? Wow, okay. couple questions there. Uh, so, <laughs> the first is how do I feel about the new edition? Uh, it'll be out next May. I'm not allowed to say the publisher yet because it hasn't been officially announced. It's going to be a beautiful hardcover. I've been having so much fun going through my files, finding all the old scripts. I found my original handwritten notes before I'd even ever pitched it to anybody. I found a script I'd written like five years before that when I didn't even know how to write a comic book script that has the seeds of Moonshadow in it. I mean, it's going to be great stuff to put in the back, you know? So uh, it's uh, along with Brooklyn Dreams, again, one of my, my favorite projects that I've ever done. So I'm thrilled that this new edition is coming out. Now, the other question was, how did it feel jumping from the regular comics over to Epic uh, and doing something like that? Yeah, with the, the new changing from the color formatting that was common at the time to now this more high, high-end high uh, comic book. No, they, I think they used to, what was the challenge? There was no challenge. It was just the most liberating thing that had ever happened to me as a writer. Because with Moonshadow, I stepped out of the Marvel and DC universes. Mm-hmm. And it was suddenly, oh, I'm not writing comic books. And I think if I look at my early work, there's still this mindset that says, you're writing Marvel comics, you're writing DC comics. And there's a certain thing that comes out of that mindset. Not that the work was bad, but it was, I was limiting myself. With, you know, I, I took that helmet off and threw it away and walked over into this universe that I was creating along with uh, John J. Muth, who's one of the most brilliant artists that I've ever worked with. Um, 
And, and it was just liberating. And I got to just say, all right, I'm going to write this. It wasn't even a conscious decision. It's just what happened. I'm writing this the way I would if I sat down to write a novel. This is just me writing as me, not as me filtered through the Marvel Universe or filtered through a layer of Stan Lee to Len Wayne to Steve Gerber to me. This is me, you know? Um, and then, of course, you had Muth's art, which was when you're working with an artist like that, you have to step up your game. You can't have art like that, you know, and and not step up your game to match the quality of what he was doing. Um, and the greatest thing he ever did for me in, the, in that whole process, and he, and he did beautiful work from beginning to end. When we were first talking about the project, I gave him my proposal, my outline, and he came over to my house because we lived near each other, and he brought some sketches. And I said, oh, these are these are very Dickensian, these sketches. He said, well, yeah, well, that's what you wrote, right? And I went, oh, yeah. That's what I wrote, <laughs> you know, and his art helped me see my own story more clearly. And, and I immediately went back and reread David Copperfield, which I read in high school. And went, yes, that's what I wrote. It's David Copperfield in outer space, you know, and that like blew my mind up, you know, and, and that also allowed me to go to the writing with a much more of a, a literary bent as opposed to a quote. A comic book bent, you know. So the whole process of working with Muth and and just being free to tell this tale was just as exhilarating a creative experience as I've ever had, and it really fundamentally changed me for the better as a writer. I wouldn't have been able to go and write Craven's Last Hunt if I hadn't written Moonshadow uh, first and sort of thrown off the shackles of what I thought a comic book story had to be. Right. So uh, Sam Noir also was asking what it was like to work with Archie Goodwin during that time. Archie was a, he was a great guy. He, uh, he was someone that you sort of, you walk in and certain editors that I've worked with over the years, you know, you, you walk in and they've already got their legend behind them, you know? So you right. walk in and you respect them right off the bat. And, and then Archie was also just a really, really nice person. And, and, and just, you know, the whole Epic office, it was Archie, it was, um, Laurie Sutton, Margaret Clark, um, Oh, God, there was Dan, I forget Dan's last name, that worked there as well. They were all really, really nice people, and it was a pleasure to work with them. And it was, I think it was, you know, it always from the head down, right? Archie created this atmosphere, so if you work in an Archie's office, that's what it's going to feel like. Because the epic, the epic line, at least in the beginning, was there not for them to impose some vision on you, but to set you free to follow your own vision. And you can't ask for anything more. It's really sort of like what Vertigo became uh, later, you know, but Epic was, was, in many ways, the foundation of Vertigo. Right. I think. So, and I'm very, and I feel very grateful that I was there for the for the beginning of Epic. I was there for the beginning of Vertigo. I was there for Paradox Press. You know, it was nice to be at the beginning of all these uh, these great lines of books. Yeah. Speaking of Vertigo, DC in the '80s, I wanted to uh, ask about your relationship with Karen Berger. How how you guys collaborated, or or how you av- uh, originally came together? Because you guys have a a, a very uh, celebrated creative relationship right but but our relationship goes back way before then That's because right. karen and i knew each other before either one of us worked in comics karen didn't really know the for i was the comic book nut you know and she tells a story about me taking her to some musty secondhand bookstore where i could buy <laughs> back issues of comics and she was like what is this place you know <laughs> but she was uh, you know we were young uh, she was 17 when we met and i was 21 you know and we she was part of our group of friends in Brooklyn and uh, we've been friends ever since. And then I started selling stuff to DC and somewhere along the line and maybe my first, you know, year or so up there, the Paul Levitt said to me, you know, I'm looking for an assistant. 
uh, you know, do you know anybody? And I think he was looking for someone who wasn't coming from a comic book background. But Karen had just graduated from Brooklyn College with a journalism degree. I said, well, I have this friend. She's really smart. She just graduated with a journalism degree. I said, well, send her up here. I sent her up there uh, for an interview. And the rest is literally comic book history, you know. And then the, the real fun was then we got to work together. Uh, we worked together before Vertigo. We worked together as part of Vertigo. And now uh, we hadn't worked together for quite a long time. And now she's back with Virgo Books. And it was just announced at New York Comic Con uh, that I'm doing a new book for her that will be out in February called The Girl in the Bay. And really, really just so much fun on so many levels to be working with Karen again. Uh, personally, just because she's one of my dearest friends on the planet. And then professionally, because she's so good at what she does, you know. So I'm very excited about this book, and I uh, hope everyone comes along for the ride on this one. Tell us a little bit about that. I was, that's why I wanted to talk about Karen Berger, because I wanted to segue into this book that's coming out. I know how excited you are about it. Can you? What can you tell us about Girl in the Bay? I'll, I'll give you the premise, and then, then we'll just let it go from there, because I don't want to tip too much. No, absolutely. It starts in 1969 in Brooklyn again, okay. um, so Karen and I can explore our roots some more. Uh, 18-year-old girl in 1969, uh, senior at Midwood High School, same high school I went to, although this character is older than I am. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 it's the era, and she's into drugs and, and hallucinogens, and one night she's out with her friends at this bar in Sheepshead Bay, which is a bar that we used to frequent some years later. Um, she meets this guy, they go out onto the docks, and they're, 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 they're about to kiss, and instead of a kiss, she gets a knife in her gut and he stabs her and throws her in the bay, kills her and throws her in the bay. She's sinking in the water and suddenly somehow comes back to consciousness, makes her way back to the surface, gets herself out of there, staggers back uh, into the bar to discover that 50 years have gone by and it's 2019. She has no idea why or what or how. And not only that, what she ultimately discovers is that for those 50 years, someone with her face and her name has been living her life. So there's now like a 68-year-old version of her uh, living out there somewhere. So that's the mystery that sets the story in motion. It's a really cool story, and we're having a great time with it. Uh, the artist's name is Corinne Howell. I had never known her work before Karen brought it to me, but she's really, really excellent, and she's doing a great job. So we're, we're really excited. It'll be out in February. That's great. Let me also plug, which is out right now from IDW, Impossible Incorporated, yes. uh, a, a new creator-owned book that I have for them uh, with my buddy Mike Cavallaro. It's a big sort of cosmic uh, Fantastic Four meets Doctor Who meets Doc Savage meets uh, quantum physics uh, meets metaphysics kind of big adventure story uh, about a 16-year-old genius named Number Horowitz and her team as they explore what's called the infinite spiral, which connects all universes and times. And it's really, really, uh, it's, very, it's the other end of the spectrum in a lot of ways from The Girl in the Bay because it's got, it's, it's, it's bright, it's colorful, it's full of big concepts and fun, and, uh, and we're having such a good time with it. So I, I, it's really hard, you know, with these creator-owned books because there's 850 million yeah. Marvel and C titles out there and then yeah. this and that. There's so much stuff out there, so it's really easy for these books to get lost in the shuffle. Yeah. So uh, I would urge anyone that enjoys my work to please go out and check out Impossible Incorporated. And then in February, uh, pick up The Girl in the Bay. And the last thing I'll plug, and then you can ask me a couple more questions and we'll be on our way, is uh, I do, you know, the past 15, 16 years I've been doing a lot of animation work. And just this past week, uh, the Constantine City of Demons movie came out, which is yes. one of the best 
best animated projects I've ever been involved with. I just, I'm so happy with the way the movie turned out. We did a big, uh, big panel and premiere at New York Comic Con, and uh, that's out right now for. Uh, you can buy it on DVD and Blu-ray and all those other crazy formats. I don't even know what they are. You can uh, you can <laughs> buy it for download. It's on Amazon. You can so you can stream it, buy it, and stream it through Amazon. It's out there right now, and I am so proud of this project. Really, just uh, really just had such a great time with it, and it really turned out really really well. And it's really I think as true a translation of the Vertigo Hellblazer that you've ever seen in another medium. Wow, that's great. It's nice to know how happy you are, how it turned out, because you, like I, I, you've worked on things in the past where, you know, they it, you get credited, but it's not anything that you wrote. You're just given some sort of credit. So to hear that you're really happy with this is is yeah. A good this thing. really really reflects my vision. And sometimes when you're working in TV, it's just the way it works because you get hired, say, on a series where they've got a staff and you're a freelancer and they say, well, this is what we need. And you give them what they need. And there are a thousand reasons after the fact because of production or something else that's come up or a change they, they need in this story for the next story that what sometimes what airs maybe reflects 50% of what you wrote. Maybe it reflects 80% of what you wrote. Sometimes and I've had a couple of occasions where it's like, this is maybe 15% of what I wrote, you know, and still your name is on it, you know? So when you get those projects where it really, um, it really is a reflection of, of, a very pure reflection of what I did on this project and uh, I'm very, very proud of it. And it turned out, so, you know, sometimes the creative process is great on a project and then you see the finished product product and you go, oh, well, I'm not crazy about that, but I really mm-hmm. loved working on it. I loved the people that I worked with other times, you know, it may be hell, the creative process, but the final product might be great. Right. In this case, the creative process was fantastic. Uh, the people that I worked with on this project, at the CW Seed and the CW Network, Greg Berlanti's company, uh, David Goyer, uh, uh, all of the producers, uh, everybody. They were just fantastic people to work with. They had great notes, but always let me go off and take whatever they were throwing at me and make it my own, you know, and uh, and, and kept me in the process to the very end. And and then you know the finished product comes out and I'm so happy with it. So that's a rare that's a rare thing. So uh, uh, if you love Constantine, I think you will love this movie. That's great. And Scooby Apocalypse is is still going on. Did you think that series would last as long as it has? No. <laughs> Let's be honest. No. You know, especially in this market, you know, you're lucky if something lasts a year. Yeah. No, it's true. Um, you know, and, and it's so funny because I got pulled onto this. You know, Keith called me up one day and said, "Well, Jim, you called, and they want us to do this Scooby Apocalypse book." And I was like, "What?" <laughs> but I will work with Keith on anything, basically. You know, it's just I love working with Keith. I always my joke is, you know, if they called us up and said, "Do Millie the model," I'll do Millie the model with Keith. You know, if Kevin's along for the ride, I'll I'll I'll, I'll definitely do it. You know, right. Um, so you know, we kind of went into Scooby going, "Well, what's this going to be like?" And and we you know we ended up having such a great time. And it's it's a fun book, and I and I've just I it's it's a fun place to, for me to go every month, and just kick back and play. You know, it's it's it's, and I'm glad it has lasted this long. We're in our third year, I think. That's great. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, it's funny too because I worked on the uh, the most recent Scooby Doo cartoon, Be Cool Scooby Doo, just before this. So and I didn't really I was not immersed in Scooby Dooosity. There I invented a new word. So working <laughs> on the TV show sort of immersed me in that universe. So that when we stepped into Scooby Apocalypse, I was suddenly the Scooby expert in the team. You know, it's because I had written these five episodes of that show. Yeah. So it was funny. Out of out of having like no connection to Scooby Doo, suddenly I am like I'm up to my eyeballs in Scooby Doo, and it was and it's been really really fun. 
You're now the authority on on everything Scooby Doo. That's great. Uh, I'm, not, I'm really not, but I know <laughs> I know more than Keith did going in. Is about all it comes down to, you know. But I have to say, the concept for Scooby Apocalypse came from Jim Lee. It's a great concept, and he he had this idea, and then they turned sent it off to us, and then we took it and ran with it. That's great. It's a real testament that it's still you know something that they're publishing. So good, yeah. good for you guys, and it's nice to see that you guys are still working together because I, I think you're. You know, most comic book fans, the the Giffen, the the Mateus team is you know a lot of our favorites. To see you guys together is is a great thing. So, uh, two more questions I have before we wrap this up because you've given okay. me much more of your time than than I expected. I really appreciate that. So, you're a musician, and uh, you're a huge Beatles fan. So, what is your favorite Beatles album? Is that a, a mean question to ask you? No, it's not. You know, I mean, if if you ask me on any. There's two that I always go back and forth with. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love them all. You know, the, the quote worst Beatles album is still one of my favorite albums. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But Abbey Road and the White Album, those are the two that I keep flipping. And in recent years, since they did the remixes in 2009, the White Album is definitely number one for me. I I, I fell in love with that album all over again when they remixed it because the sound just opened up in new ways. There's so much extraordinary material on I think the songwriting on the White Album is some of the best songwriting on any Beatles album. Much the songs are much stronger than the songs on Pepper, which came before it, which is not to say Pepper's not a great album, but if you just look at the songs, and there's such a variety of songs, and yeah. you get Lennon at his best, and McCartney at his best, and Harrison at his best, and even Ringo gets a song, you know? <laughs> and, and it's like, you get music that goes back to the 1920s, you know, with Honey Pie, and then all the way into, like, the future with Revolution Number no. 9, you know? And everything you can imagine in between. It's a phenomenal album. Phenomenal album. And I'm so excited about this new um, sort of ultimate White Album that's coming out next month. Uh, it's just great. I'm just really, really excited. So yeah, that was an easy question to answer. It's okay. Absolutely. Do you have a, a top five uh, Beatles songs, like the ones that this is why they're they're my favorite? Yeah, it's like it's it's impossible. <laughs> and, you know, I did a thing on my website a few years back where I listed I think my top twenty. Okay, that's and, still hard. Uh, that could be still. Very if anyone hard. wants to kind of look 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 through my website and and and, and find that post, you'll see my 20 favorites so i actually pulled that out because i know you said you were going to ask me about five favorites good so the the you know the top five i have here but then you know i look at the next five i'm going but what about that one yeah i'll give why don't i give you the top 10 all right top 10 give me the top 10 yeah i got uh and even that number 11 is happiness is a warm gun one of the greatest songs ever but 10 is let it be nine is blackbird eight is in my life seven is across the universe specifically the version from Let It Be Naked. So that's how much of a Beatles nerd I am. Uh, six is I Am the Walrus. Five is the finale from Abbey Road. You know, Golden Slumbers, Carry That Weight, The End. Okay. Uh, four, four is Here Comes the Sun. Three is Strawberry Fields. Two is A Day in Life. And one is Hey Jude. Nice. Good list. I, I think that, that could be a, someone should make that playlist and put it on Spotify or Apple, the J.M. DeMatteis Beatles, Ultimate Beatles list. <laughs> So this this last question might be the mean one because you you're gonna have to pick another favorite. So, okay. other than Stan Lee, who is your favorite Spider-Man writer? Favorite Spider-Man writer? Oh God! Yeah, put you on the spot for that one. That's a tough one. Plus, I don't want to insult any of my friends. <laughs> you know, if I. There have been so many great writers on Spider-Man. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to like fudge this. There no. have been so many incredible writers on, on Spider-Man over the years, and I have to say I haven't really kept up in recent years. Although I've read a bunch of Dan Slott stuff, and he's done a phenomenal job as well. 
the person, you know, Tom DeFalco has done phenomenal work. Um, I remember David Michelini was terrific. Um, Roger Stern, if I, had a, if I had to pick one after Stan, I would probably say Roger Stern. Because Roger's stuff, what I remember, and, and Tom was able to, always able to do the same thing, to really be immersed in sort of classic Lee Ditko Romita Spider-Man. You know, always felt like you were in the midst of that sort of classic um, framework. And yet he always made it fresh, feel fresh and new. Um, so if I had to pick one, it would be Roger. But, you know, again, you know, Tom and so many other great writers, um, you know, maybe I'd have Tom right behind Roger by a hair, you know. He picked um, up that book seamlessly. After Roger got off, he continued whatever Roger had started. It was a perfect yeah. blend. Yeah, Tom is, Tom is just, he's one of those people who's just a natural storyteller. He just, yeah. you know, when you sit down and when we would sit down together and, and talk about story, he just knows story to his bones. You know, it's just intuitive with him and, and he just has such a great sense of what makes a good story. And he was, and I was saying to someone recently, the great thing about Spider-Man is it doesn't matter who you are or what background you come from. We all, we all, we all connect with Peter. We all think he's us. Yes. You so whatever Tom's background, you know, he, he brings that to the table and, and Spider-Man becomes very personal to him. I have a different background, you know, although we share the Italian part, <laughs> I have a different background and he, and he becomes personal to me. It doesn't matter who the writer is, you know, uh, that's the great thing about Spider-Man and about Peter Parker is there's something really specific about him and yet there's something incredibly universal that we as writers can all relate to and that the readers can all relate to. So that brings us back where we started, which was Spider-Man. How's that? There you go. That's perfect. Well, thank you so, so much. This has been a fantastic treat for me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. We got into some uh, interesting places that we don't always get into in these conversations, so I appreciate that. So I can't begin to tell you how much I enjoyed that conversation with uh, Mr. J.M. Demetrius, who... I loved the guy's writing before I had this conversation. I've listened to many podcasts with him on it. So to get a chance to have him on the Cave of Solitude and to talk to him about you know questions that I've had was an absolute treat. And just to think in, in within the last year or two, some of the writers that I've been able to talk to, you know, last month was Tom DeFalco. Now I got J.M. DeMatteis. Like, you know, you got you to gotta count your blessings. And that was phenomenal so thank you again to jam Mateus. thank you to the people who submitted questions if you want to read uh, some of the books that he mentioned hit up your local comic book shop go to cyber city comics if you're in the north york area they will get you all of the books that are available from him and he's still writing books now that are hitting the shelves every month and the good news is we, we ended the conversation off off the air um or off the recording agreeing that we would meet in the new year for a tentative date to talk about some of the things that he's going to be having uh, released in the new year 2019 so i can't wait for that because there's a ton of other questions of things that he's worked on that i didn't get into i didn't even really dig deep into craven's last hunt so next time he's back we're definitely gonna open up a whole other can of worms of, of stuff that he's worked on so thank you again for listening this is the cave of solitude rate and review us on itunes if you enjoy the show tell a friend follow us on facebook uh follow us on instagram and stay tuned for more episodes and don't be scared to go back into the archive for some of the uh, great episodes that i've had with friends comic book artists writers daft J. Martin Slam Duncan, check out the Fastball Special, check out 
the uh, comic shenanigans, some of my favorite podcasts that are out there. So thank you everybody for listening. I'm your host, Eric Anthony, and we will be back soon. Across the universe